Namo tasa bhagavato harato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-awakened one. <clears throat> so it's uh, New Year tomorrow and uh, traditionally we look back over the past year, give ourselves a good kicking and then try and make a resolution for a better year to come. So there are sort of various areas that we, we can reflect on, you know, social, economic and so on. But of course, what um, we're particularly interested here, as said Ibanya, is our spiritual progress. And I want to start with a quote from Meiji Kao. I'm sure I've not pronounced that right. But anyway, she's a Thai forest nun who died uh, late last century, 80s maybe, something like that. And uh, she wrote an autobiography. And she was well, she was, um, uh, acknowledged as an Arahant, fully self, so fully self-awakened, not self-awakened, fully awakened. And this is one of the core quotes from her autobiography. Body, mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. <clears throat> earth, water, fire and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought and consciousness, sound, sight, smells, taste, touches and emotions, anger, greed and delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist, in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have power, any power, over my heart. They arise and cease, they are forever changing, but the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. It is forever unborn and undying. This is the end of all suffering. I shall read that again. I think it's worth reading a few times, actually. Body, mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches and emotions. Anger, greed and delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist, in their own natural states. But no matter how much I'm exposed to them, I'm unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. They arise and cease, they are forever changing, but the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. It is forever unborn and undying, 
This is the end of all suffering. So now we have to unpack this so that we can, <laughs> so that we can use it as a guide uh, to our own practice. First of all, she says, body, mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities. So now when the Buddha finally sat under that tree, he was driven by the question about suffering, which up until then he had tried to answer through achieving happiness. And in those days there were two methodologies. One was either through the practice of jhana, these absorptions, which produce ecstatic states of mind. I'm sure all of you have a touched upon these states. But unfortunately they arise and pass away, that's what he discovered. Even though teachers of his time uh, would have said that this is the highest and there's nowhere beyond it. And the other way was self-mortification. And the idea there was to liberate the soul, the eternal soul, from the body. The body being a manifestation of attachment to this form, this realm. So one went into mortification exercise. One gave up the world. But gave up the world in a sense that uh, was to destroy the body. And eventually, um, in the James sex and I'm sure others, the idea was to starve oneself to death. And that was the final act of renunciation, the final act of... Uh, self-mortification which would then release the soul into heaven. So remember the Buddha tried that and uh, found it just to be more suffering. When he came to sit under the tree the whole process had changed around upon itself and instead of seeking happiness he began to question how he creates suffering and that's what led him to his insights. But there we had this moment of doubt self-doubt and it's something that we'll all come across self-doubt who am I to sit here under the tree and work out this question which everybody else has been trying to do and there's nothing special about me and it's put in that mythological way that Mara attacked him with all sorts of sensual pleasures uh, boredom all the usual stuff but mostly this sense of self-doubt and it was when he touched the ground, again, uh, you know, in the mythology of it, and uprose the goddess, the earth goddess. And she stated clearly that the reason he had a right to sit there and crack this problem was because of his past, past lives through which he had exercised the perfection of generosity. And that's the beginning of the Bodhisattva vow. In other words, he wasn't doing it just for himself, but for others. And with that, there came the strength to sit through the process of liberation, which includes, remember, a process of purification. When Mara attacked him, that was part of the purification, of letting go of all these desires, and of coming to terms with whatever impurities were in his heart. In our tradition, Theravada tradition, the Bodhisattva vow is one who determines to become a fully self-awakened Buddha in order to liberate others. This was then extended to mean um, 
the idea was to liberate oneself in order to help others. And then finally, you wouldn't yourself become liberated until everybody else was liberated, which is the Mahayana vow, which always seems to me a little improbable because <laughs> you'd be hanging around for a long time and it's definitely not a determination that Siddhartha Gautama made. So I think it's best just to get on with it and become liberated <laughs> with the intention that you will share it to others. And it's impossible not to. It's impossible to follow the path and not, and not cultivate generosity. See? So, <clears throat> when he sits under this tree, again we have it in the mythology, that he, he broke through the delusion. And three knowledges came to him. The first was that he was completely clear of these impurities. And the second one was that through, record, through recalling all his past lives, he saw that the, 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 uh, the key um, to that process was in ethics. Right? So just making a quick distinction between morality and ethics, most people look upon morality as thou shalt not. So it is a bit of a, a, bit of a loaded word. But ethics just means relationship. What is your relationship to the world, including people, animals, etc., etc.? So through these past decisions, he moved from life to life until completely purified, uh, or should we say ready to make this big break. He has been, he's reborn. And, but he also notices that other beings are moving from realm to realm according to the same conditioning. So what was a personal understanding of him, a personal law, became universal. And so in this process of liberation, there is both the process of insight and the process of purification. Yeah. Now, when he then um, begins to teach, he makes this distinction between the body and the mind. So this is it, you see. Our separate realities, body and mind. Right? Which doesn't sound very um, materialistic, scientifically speaking, correct. Because everything, as you know, from a material scientist's point of view, uh, is an emanation, not an emanation, what they call it. It arises out of subatomic particles. Consciousness arises out of subatomic particles. So in Buddhist understanding, um, these two are different forms of energy, but they're not the same. And one of the distinctions we make in our practice, which is a vipassana insight, is to clearly see that the body is one thing and the mind is something else. Right? So there's desire and the body moves. Right? Somebody stands on your toe and anger arises. And it's being able to separate these two processes that is your first vipassana insight. The second one is to see that the one is always dependent on the other. Yeah. So that's the beginning of this whole process of deconstructing our experience. And it's in that process of deconstruction that we come across what she calls the essence. Now, I don't know whether essence actually translates 
her Thai word, but it'll do. Essence meaning uh, something which is um, at the core of our existence. Yeah, something which is essential. All the rest is not essential, but this is essential. So if we take it at that sort of meaning. That is also a separate reality. And in, uh, again, later Buddhist understanding, this the Abhidhamma, they would talk about conventional realities, which is the body and mind, and ultimate reality, which is Nibbana. In the Buddha's own way of expressing things, he was much more interested in the experience of Nibbana. He was much more... Um, careful not to move into the area of, well, what is it that experiences Nibbāna? It was more the sense of experiencing it and then a person deciding what its qualities were. In later Buddhism, the accent changed. It changed to, well, if there is this Nibbāna, some, some thing must know it. And so we get words coming up such as Buddha nature. Okay? Sort of a change of accent. So that was the first thing in, in our practice, in the Vipassana practice, which comes down to us through the dependent origination. So this is the psychology that the Buddha teaches as to how we cause suffering for ourselves. And right there, he's stating that there's two different realities, Nama, Rupa. Okay? Then she goes on to say, everything is absolutely known. Now, when we talk about, when, when she says that, it's only what arises in consciousness at this present moment is known, meaning understood. Right? It's not a case of just knowing it, like it's there, you know, like uh, <coughs> there's, uh, there are lights in the ceiling. It's a case of understanding what lights are. So in this sense, absolutely everything is, un is understood. Absolutely everything is understood not in themselves in a scientific way, but understood from a spiritual angle as to what they are in relationship to this essence. Right? That's what's being understood. So this process that we're going through of deconstructing our experience, which means just, just unpacking it, just separating the bits, just seeing how it all coheses, how it all comes together into this experience of being a human being, that whole process uh, leads us to discovering this essence. The delusion lies in thinking that we are this process, that we are this human being with body and mind. In other words, the whole of the spiritual life sort of ranges around a crisis of identity. The who am I or what am I is the fundamental question beneath all of spirituality. It's a question of who am I? Or perhaps a little bit more accurate, what am I? Then she describes the body. So the body is earth, water, fire and wind. Not wind in the sense of uh, <laughs> flatulence, but wind in the sense of motion. So here we have these four characteristics. Now, um, 
This is where the separation of the body and mind become more obvious to us. When we talk about the body, we're normally talking about something physical, something that we can feel and touch, like my hand. But when I ask, what is it that I know about my hand, you see, rather than what I think I know about my hand, then it becomes, it becomes, uh, we begin to realize that actually what we know about the hand is only possible through the mind. So, uh, blood for instance, there's blood coursing through my hand. See, I don't feel it. It's creating a certain color of, of uh, pink and red and all that. But I'm not aware of it. And I'd only be aware of my bones when I knock them. So, when we're talking about the body in Buddhism, yes, there is a physical body, but it's how the mind experiences the body, which is where the problem lies. Okay? And the mind experiences the body at a feeling level through these four characteristics. It's either through some form of heat, through some form of movement, some form of pressure or heaviness, lightness, or some form of cohesion, stickiness. And all of the senses have some combination of those four. So seeing, for instance, would be mainly fire. Hearing is definitely at the sense, at the point where the sound comes into the ear is pressure. Right? Remember, everything else is interpreted within the, the brain-mind complex. But actually there, at the eardrum, all there is are pressure waves. At a more subtle level, we have sense of smell and uh, tasting. But um, when we get down to that, you'll see that it's some form of these four characteristics. So the reality that she talks about of the body is, in a sense, not contactable by us. Except through the mind. Except how the mind actually senses and feels the body. So for instance, your toenails. Every so often you cut them off. I mean, think about that. You just cut off a bit of your body. And there's no grief. There's no, in fact, if anything, there's probably relief if they're grown too big. And you haven't a clue that at this moment they're actually growing. There's nothing, there's no way in which you can tell that your toenails are actually growing at this present moment. But we presume they are. See? So when you actually investigate what it is what is it that you directly know or experience of your body it really is quite minimal it's quite minimal and it's like being in a car so you're in a car and you feel yourself in control of it and you you can feel the movement of the car and you can direct the car and and put little lights on all over the place but actually you, you know you have an image of the motor but you haven't a clue what's going on inside the engine at that time. And if, if the piston blows, that's the end of it. 
and you've no control over it. So it's the same with the body. Uh, so long as it's sort of motoring along, everything's fine. But then when your leg drops off, well then you think, what the hell? See? <laughs> so, uh, the distinction here is the body is one thing, and the way the mind knows it and contacts it is something else. Right? It's not they are completely distinct, but they're obviously not the same. But she is clear that there is earth, water, fire and, and, and wind, which is movement. And that this is the way we know the body, through these basic uh, sensations. Then she uses a different form of categories, which are the candors, the five aggregates. The body, feeling, memory, thought and consciousness. So, here now, the Buddha is deconstructing the mind itself. So we've talked about the body and how the mind contacts the body. Feeling are those sensations in your body which are caused both by the body, such as when you stub your toe and it hurts, and those feelings that are coming from the mind, the emotional states. Those are your feelings. They're all feelings, even though we might have different words for them, like sensations, feelings, emotions and all that. Actually, they're all just they're all just feeling. And the fact is that they're either pleasant or unpleasant. Even neutral ones, when we go close to them and really investigate, you'll see that they side on to either being ever so slightly unpleasant or ever so slightly pleasant. That's our feeling life. Memory, it's interesting that she translates or the word sanya is being translated as memory because the direct translation normally is perception. But of course, our perceptions are like photocopies in our minds of things that we've experienced. And these photocopies grow the more that we experience the similar sort of um, event. So the more I eat apples, the more my idea of an apple grows depending on all my experiences with apples. So what, what might begin initially as a simple, as a simple perception then becomes a, a, concrete percep a concrete concept of what an apple is. So I can distinguish between an apple and a pear. All that becomes your memory. It also includes all your words, all your understanding about uh, um, various abstract concepts art, freedom, democracy, all that sort of stuff, all that becomes part of your memory bank and words, words are a way of holding that understanding for us. So when we say a word like, like Buddhism, it comes up with a whole presumed set of understandings that we've, that we've conjured up for ourselves through our reading, etc., etc., Now here it's translated as thought, but uh, that that isn't really a good translation for sankara. Sankara are those habits that we've created through acts of will. And there's a very clear understanding as to why the Buddha has deconstructed our experience in this way. Right? There are other ways of deconstructing a human experience, such as Freud with his superego, his ego, and, the, and his id. 
Right? There are different ways of looking at a human being. But this way is a way which is meant to help us liberate ourselves from suffering. And this particular sankara are where we actually have the power to change our relationships to the world, this ethics. The ethics is within these sankharas. And every time we've had an intention which is wholesome and we have empowered it into a good continuous habit, uh, we're creating these conditionings, volitional conditionings. And in the same way, something unwholesome, we develop that too. And what we discover is, by recognizing something as unwholesome and allowing the power of that desire to arise and manifest as desire, not indulging it through our thoughts, through our language and through our deeds, allows that energy to exhaust itself and we undermine that particular habit. Eventually, it should be completely destroyed. And in the same way, when we see something wholesome, Uh, and we actually empower it, it grows, and the mind is illimitable. When we talk about these four um, great attitudes, you might say, love, compassion, joy, and peace, these are known as illimitable because uh, the growth of the mind is indefinite. It's It's not limited by space. It's not limited by time. Any moment now, in this present moment, we can be completely full of love, completely full of joy. There's nothing, there's nothing limiting us but ourselves. And the ability to create that as an attitude in the heart is with us all the time. All this comes under these sankharas, rather unfortunately translated here as thought. Consciousness is the ability of the mind to hold a present moment and it's multi-dimensional it has both what we can see depending on a circumstance it has both what we can see what we can hear what we can feel uh, what our emotional state is it's like um, it's like a, a multi-dimensional monitor screen or television screen it holds it holds in this moment what this moment offers us and it's and it's it's known right Without that ability to hold perceptions arising, images arising, emotions arising, it could not be known. Something has to manifest from moment to moment, and these are these moments of consciousness. Unfortunately, um, even, even in the Buddha's language, the word vijnana, which he which he's uses here, is, is also used in other, in other ways. So he'll talk, he actually sometimes refers to the essence as a vijnana. So even he is struggling for uh, using the language of his day in order to express his understandings because they were radically different. They were, they were just a different experience, based on a different experience. And uh, these days, as you know, consciousness is, is heavily uh, investigated. And I have a book on on it and, and the confusion is you know reigns from consciousness being something uh, ethereal to consciousness and its objects being the same etc etc um, but in Buddhist understanding I think we're close to understanding it if we if we see it more like 
um, a multi-dimensional screen right? and it holds this moment for us and then it collapses and then new information comes in and it holds the next moment for us and it's moving at such a speed that we get the sense of, of continuity right? and one of the insights of our practice is to get down to that very infinitesimal moment to see the collapse of consciousness and that is seeing a Nietzsche at its most subtle, direct level. And it's in these sorts of insights that we break through the delusion of, well, this is me. But it's just disappeared. Right? The next section, she talks of sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches and emotions. Um, these are... Uh, another way that the Buddha deconstructs our experience by talking about consciousness and the way consciousness works. And he points out that the various senses that we've got can't be mixed. You've either, you can't smell through your eyes, right? And you can't see through your ears. So each consciousness is a specific avenue of experience. And again, if we are to understand the Abhidhamma, it's, uh, this, this whole process is happening in minute little pixels, you might say, picking up on, on all these little bits of information coming in from all the senses, which are held just long enough in consciousness for it to be known. But it's another way of deconstructing our experience, right? So we say, in, in again, in the Dependrigination, it's the Salayatana, it's the six it's the six um, uh, spheres of experience, ayatana. And this word again, he uses to describe Nibbana. It is an ayatana. It is a sphere of experience which is nothing, which has um, no connection with these six spheres of experience. The sixth one, of course, being the mind. Here, uh, translated by emotion, which is a bit odd. I don't know who translated this, but, <laughs> but it's, normally, it's normally just put as the mind, right? So remember, um, when sensations come in, they come in as just raw information. And it's the internal processes of the mind that's actually creating something that we recognize and acknowledge. Yeah? So in other words, all that's coming from these light bulbs in the, uh, in, in the ceiling is just photons. And the retina is picking it up and it's going into there and it's going through a process of being recognized and acknowledged. By which I mean, first of all, there's a recognition that it, it is light and then it's there for a purpose. So I put it all in a, in a context of what, that, of what that ceiling light means. All that belongs to the sixth sense base. So we've had, these, we've had these deconstructions, right? First of all, of the body, of uh, more, more, more accurately, how the mind experiences the body, earth, fire, earth, water, fire and wind. We've had a deconstruction by way of uh, the different uh, kanda, the different heaps, right? Just like a, a heap of sand, right? They're all little bits, but they're separate heaps. Uh, the body itself, feelings, the, um, memory, perceptions, concepts, um, mental, st um, these 
volitional conditionings, our habits, and consciousness. And now we've had this other way of looking at the human being, which is through the ayatana, through these spheres of experience. Okay? So she's listed those for us, right? There's a whole load of, you know, Buddhist teaching around them. Then she says, anger, greed, and delusion. So now here we're talking about an arahat. Anger, greed, and delusion. So now, uh, this presents us with a question. How is it that the that an arahat can still have anger, greed, and delusion arise? <clears throat> well, it might be that uh, she's here uh, perhaps talking about what she sees in other people. Um, I can't imagine that she is deluded because the whole process of becoming fully liberated is the undermining and complete destruction of the delusion of who I am. Right? But on the other hand, there can be traces, or should we say there can be traces of how delusion manifests in the mind itself, left over. And going back to the Buddha's own experience, after he was fully liberated, Mara still tempted him. Mara sent his three daughters, which were sensual desire, sexual desire, and boredom. And they hunted him down, it seems, for seven years. And it was only after seven years that they said to, to Mara, uh, that Mara gave up. And what Mara says is, the Buddha sees me. The Buddha sees me. And at that point, uh, that those temptations came to an end. Now, without going into all the, um, uh, should we say, what should we say, uh, the di uh, into um, a different way of looking at this process of what we call um, entering the path and fruit, you know, the, uh, the stream entrant, the once returner, the non-returner, and finally, the one who's fully liberated. Uh, what we get from that particular story, which again is put mythologically, is that even after he was fully liberated, the Buddha still went through a further purification process to finally banish the consequences of his past delusion. So it may be that uh, this is what Meiji is actually um, referring to. Meiji means none. But the thing is, and this is the point, all are known, meaning all are understood. And I know them all as they exist. In other words, she's quite, she's quite clear as to what they are. They, they fall into one of these categories. She's no longer deluded by any of it. And they're all in their own natural states. Meaning this is the way samsara is, this is the way the world is. So she knows that. She's very clear about it. Now, then she says, no matter how much I'm exposed to them, I'm unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. Now, uh, the word heart here is translating the word chitta, which translates as, as, as mind uh, normally. But here, over my heart, is the chitta of Nibbana. So again, this is one of those words that the Buddha has to play around with because there, isn't, there just isn't the language for it. So just as he uses vijnana, consciousness, 
also to refer to the Nibbanic consciousness, he uses Chitta. And in that victory verse that we chant every morning, he says Chittang A Sankatang, the Chitta which is non-conditioned. So in other words, this isn't, this isn't the consciousness that we've been talking about, this screen that holds something. This is something other than. And, this, and all these things that are happening within this screen of consciousness never touch uh, that essence. Remember, that's the other word she uses, essence, which she calls uh, here, the heart. They arise and cease. They are forever changing, but the presence that knows them never changes for an instance. So again, she's using a different word to point to this Nibbana, the sense of presence. Now, in your meditation, when you are the observer, when you are the feeler, the one who knows, when you feel yourself to be quite separate from sensations in the body, from feelings and emotions in the heart, from your thoughts and images, when you, when you get that sense of true separation and you uh, experience yourself as the one who knows, that is the sense of presence. But remember, that's not the end point. That's also a delusion because we're aware of it. Right? If you're aware of something, you can't be it. The perceiver can't be the perceived. It's very simple. But when you get to that point, sometimes in your meditation, you know, afterwards reflect upon it because that's what she's referring to. But the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. It is forever unborn and undying. This is the end of all suffering. So there we have it. Here we have a modern, here we have somebody not born 2,500 years ago. Here we have somebody <coughs> of, the, of, our own, uh, of our own lifetime who is actually stating that she became fully liberated. This is the end of all suffering. Right? So it's important to understand that it's possible. That it isn't something mythical that, you know, that only belongs to some sort of past age, some sort of Shangri-La. That it's up to us really. It's, it's within our grasp to at least move directly towards that sort of goal. And um, it should, and although, although it demands a certain effort, uh, it demands a certain, um, uh, you know, that we pass through periods which are difficult and, and, uh, uh, and all that, uh, the, the fact of that purification is that it always gives you a gift at the end. Because it's like getting over an illness. You know, if you've got an illness, no matter whether it's just a simple cold or something quite serious, when it's gone, there is that just that sense of relief and a release from it. So it's the same with all these agitations and turbulences that are within us. When we see them passing, when we see that they're actually not so strong, that they don't, uh, that they don't control us as much as they used to do, that they don't last as long, you know, when we reflect on that over time, there comes to us a sense of relief, a sense of being slowly released from our own suffering. Yeah. So uh, this is an opportunity, really. See, tomorrow, when we have time to reflect and whatnot. And on the day itself, New Year's Day, when we go up to the stupa and um, put our resolutions, uh, we burn our resolutions as offerings, burnt offerings. Um, it's just an opportunity to really make that commitment. And remember that vows last as long as you say them, right? Even, even a minute after you've made the vow, uh, the strength of the vow begins to disappear. <laughs> so it's not as though you say, right, well, this year I'm going to practice two hours every morning. You've got to say every morning and you've got to keep yourself at it. 
until it becomes habitual. Even when it's habitual, there's always the danger of fallback. So uh, the New Year's resolution is to be repeated day after day after day after day. And that's the way it has an effect on us. And when you repeat a resolution to yourself, you have to, you have to speak it very gently into your heart. And you have to keep saying it and keep saying it and keep saying it until you feel a sort of digestion. You can almost feel it there's a physical change in the heart. I don't mean the physical heart, I mean the centre of your chest where the, where the heart chakra is. And you can almost feel it being digested. That's when it's beginning to, to get a hold on you. See, And that's the point, that's the real purpose of, of repetitive prayer or repetitive uh, well-wishings. You see, if you, you have to keep saying these things, saying these things into the heart, you see. And then very slowly you can feel that it's, that it's actually beginning to have an effect. Then it begins to manifest through what you think and what you, what you say and what you do. And in that way, the feedback comes back to the heart and reinforces that resolution. And it does even more so when you see the benefits of it. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance, that you are not thrown into deeper confusion, uh, but that you, that you feel that uh, some clarification has taken part, and that uh, through your um, eternal devotion to the practice, you will be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.